Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Filled with Brahman are the things we see. Filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is. From Brahman floweth all. Yet is it still the same. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. Good morning. As you all know, Christmas is only two weeks away, and so it seemed fitting that today's topic should be Christmas-related. Well, not quite Christmas-related. The topic is Jesus the Teacher. My guru, Swami Prabhavananda, used to say that there were four great teachers, the four that he recognized as the greatest in the whole of history. And in the order in which they appeared, they were Sri Krishna, the Buddha, Jesus, and Sri Ramakrishna. In 1964, Swami Prabhavananda published a book called The Sermon on the Mount, According to Vedanta. And in it, he took from the Gospel of Matthew, The Sermon on the Mount, which is a literary creation on the part of the author to put together Jesus' teachings in a coherent and beautiful message. Swami's purpose in writing this book was to underscore the universality of all religious truth. Now today, we're going to take a slightly different look at Jesus, not from the Gospel of Matthew or from Mark, Luke, or John, or any of the books of the Bible for that matter, but from the Gospel of Thomas. Now, many of you may not be familiar with the Gospel of Thomas, so let me begin by giving some historical background. We'll go back to December of 1945, when a couple of Egyptian peasants, two brothers, went out to dig for fertilizer at the base of a cliff. And when they were doing that, they discovered a sealed pottery jar. And when the jar was opened, it was found to contain 13 ancient books. And these books, in turn, contained the text of 52 ancient writings in the Coptic language. Uh, It's a long story of what happened next, but eventually these texts found their way into the hands of scholars who were able to identify and translate and evaluate them. And among these 52 texts, the ones that really was outstanding was the Gospel of Thomas, a collection of teachings of Jesus. Now, the scholars studied these texts, and they were able to determine that they were bound into books around the year 348. And they were also able to determine that they were buried around the year 367. And how did that come about? There had been a monastery in the vicinity, the monastery of St. Pacomius. And in the year 367, Athanasius, the powerful bishop of Alexandria, decreed that all heretical Christian writings should be destroyed. The monks packed up their library, all the parts that weren't in the canonical Bible, sealed them in a jar, put them away for safekeeping, and there they remained for the next 1,600 years. Now, something interesting had happened earlier in the year 1897, and again in 1903, excavators had discovered at another place in Egypt, at Atsirinkas, a collection of papyrus fragments. 
And these fragments were found to contain the sayings of Jesus, written in the Greek language. So when scholars began to translate the Gospel of Thomas from the Coptic, they realized that this was a translation of these Greek sayings of which only part had survived. So they were able to identify them with the Oxyrhynchus papyrus. This meant that these sayings in the Gospel of Thomas were earlier than they might have thought otherwise. They had to date from around 200 BCE. And then when the scholars began studying the actual language of the Greek, they found that it was very unidiomatic. The way the sentences were structured, the way the verses were put together, none of it really matched the patterns of Greek thought. But there was a match with the Aramaic language, the language that Jesus himself originally spoke. Now, since then, much more study has been done, and most scholars today will agree that the Gospel of Thomas was written no later than the year 140, and possibly as early as the year 50. They think also that it was written in Syria, at the city of Edessa. Now, why? What's this all about? Well, we have to look at the beginnings of the Christian church. After the crucifixion, Jesus' followers banded together under the leadership of his brother, James, who was known as James the Righteous or James the Just. And they became known, at least to modern scholarship, as the Jerusalem community. These people followed Jewish law. They regarded Jesus as the Messiah, but in the Hebrew sense of Mashiach, the flesh and blood king of the Jews or of the Israelite people. They followed the Jewish customs, and they believed that Jesus was ordained by God as a leader, but he was a fully human flesh and blood leader. This was a monarchical setup. So if Jesus had been the king of the Jews, then he was succeeded by his brother, James, and James was succeeded by a nephew. This explains why Peter, who was such a close and powerful and important disciple, could never be the leader of the Jerusalem community because he was not related by blood. Well, shortly thereafter, a new figure appeared on the scene. His name was Saul, and he was a Jew whose job was to persecute this new Christian community. But something happened on his way to Damascus. He had a miraculous vision of the risen Christ, and he gave rise then to a new view of Jesus. From almost the beginning, there was tension between Peter and James on the one hand and Paul on the other, and there are traces of this that still remain in the New Testament writings. And by the year 62, or by the year 60, two years before James was executed by the Romans, uh, there was already a visible split. The followers of Jesus had split into at least these two factions, the Jerusalem community and the followers of Paul. And then after the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70, the remaining Jerusalem community who had survived this terrible war uh, fled and found uh, refuge at the city of Edessa in Syria, beyond the border of the Roman Empire. And this is where scholars believe the Gospel of Thomas was written. Now, Paul's views are the earliest uh, writings in the uh, Christian New Testament, the official New Testament. The Pauline epistles are, in fact, the foundational documents of Christian theology. And we find in them that Paul himself took little interest in Jesus' teachings. Instead, the emphasis was on the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the saving power of the risen Christ, Christos. So here the Hebrew Mashiach, the flesh and blood king of the Jews, becomes Christos, crucified and resurrected Savior. And it's Paul's brand of Christianity that eventually became mainstream. 
Now, during the time of Paul, the word heresy existed, but heresy in its original meaning meant merely the choice of going with another opinion, holding a different opinion. But as Pauline Christianity became the norm, the word heresy came to mean a forbidden and dangerous doctrine. And that is why in the year 367, the Bishop Athanasius decreed that all heretical Christian writings should be destroyed, and that is how the Gospel of Thomas came to be sealed in the jar and buried at Nag Hammadi. Now, this version of the Gospel of Thomas was written in Coptic, and it was found in the context of a Gnostic library. Now, we have to look at this very closely. Is the Gospel of Thomas a Gnostic document? Now, Gnosticism was a movement that had its roots in the Jewish wisdom tradition and also in pagan thought, ancient Greek and Roman thought. Its later developments became Christianized and were deemed a heresy by the Christian church. And its later tenets included the idea that the world was evil, it was created by a demigod who made an absolute mess of things, uh, they also believed that there was a terrible, stark dualism that pervaded everything, and they had this absurd cosmology filled with weird myths. But however, the Gospel of Thomas, even though found in this Gnostic context, contains nothing of that. So we have to look at the word Gnosticism in a broader sense, small g. The word gnosis is Greek for knowledge, and this is cognate to the Sanskrit word jnana, and in this case, knowledge particularly means knowledge of the self. Now, this phrase, know thyself, was found inscribed in the forecourt of the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, centuries before Jesus. And the scholars believe that this idea of self-knowledge didn't even originate with the Greeks. They probably got it from the Egyptians. We know certainly that the Greeks passed along this idea of self-knowledge to the Romans. And I'm going to quote here from the Roman politician and philosopher Cicero, who was born about a hundred years before Jesus. Here's what he wrote. For he who knows himself will realize in the first place that he has a divine element within him and will think of his own inner nature as a kind of consecrated image of God, and so he will always act and think in a way worthy of so great a gift of the gods. And when he has thoroughly examined and tested himself, he will understand how nobly equipped by nature he entered life and what manifold means he possesses for the attainment and acquisition of wisdom. Now, in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus also reminds us of our true nature he deprecates worldliness, but he celebrates the world. And he shows us that the way back to our true original being is this path of knowledge. So what the Gospel of Thomas shares with ancient Greek and Roman thought, and with the Upanishads for that matter, is that knowledge of the divine and knowledge of oneself are inseparable. Now, in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus appears to us as a sage who teaches through proverbs, maxims, aphorisms, parables, and commonly understood metaphors, many of them relating to nature, ordinary experiences, and common sense. And here I might interject that Ramakrishna did exactly the same thing. Now, wisdom is often personified as a female principle called chokhmah in Hebrew, or Sophia in Greek. 
But how do we define this wisdom? What is it? Wisdom is a presence that enters into the soul and bridges the gap between the mortal human being and God. In Thomas, Jesus sometimes speaks of wisdom, and at other times we find that he is speaking as the voice of wisdom itself. Now, the point of view in the Gospel of Thomas mostly reflects the older Jewish wisdom tradition, which is most uh, exemplified in the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and also in a non-canonical book known as the Odes of Solomon, a collection of very beautiful prayers from the first or second century, roughly contemporary with the Gospel of Thomas. Now, my guru, Swami Prabhupada, always used to say, and he delighted in saying this, Jesus Christ was born a Jew and died a Jew. He never became a Christian. And there's truth in this. Now, for, for, for example, we have to look at Judaism in the time of Jesus. What was it? It was not monolithic. There were about a dozen different Jewish sects at the time of Jesus, and he didn't fit into any of them. He agreed with the precepts of some, disagreed with others, and he also was influenced by various trends of thought outside of Judaism. The other important thing about Jesus, this is very important, is that he colored outside of the lines. And I mean this as a mark of respect, because this sort of unconventionality is the mark of every great spiritual teacher. Now, after the crucifixion, the followers of Jesus made an attempt to preserve his teachings. They were passed along orally at first, and eventually they came to be written down. But in the process, divergences appeared. Now, the two earliest sources of Jesus' teachings are the Gospel of Thomas and also a hypothetical gospel called Q, which scholars have pieced together by comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke and seeing what they had in common. The Gospel of Thomas, as I said, uh, was probably written in Edessa, and it probably represents the views of the earliest followers led by Jesus' brother. Uh, later on, the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reflected more and more the views of Pauline Christianity, because over time they were edited and revised. Unlike these so-called synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all have a similar point of view, the Gospel of Thomas is very different. It contains only the sayings and teachings of Jesus. There is no narrative of the birth, no incidents from his life, no resurrection, no crucifixion, uh, no talk of sin and salvation, uh, none of that. There's none of this preaching of the fiery end of the world to come. Only the teachings of Jesus. And so the Gospel of Thomas itself consists of a one-sentence prologue followed by 114 sayings. And actually, some of these sayings are clusters of sayings. So in essence, there are probably about 150 individual sayings of Jesus or attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. Now, how are they arranged? They're not arranged in a logical order. There's no argument. There's no setting forth of a premise. Instead, it seems like they're gathered together informally, and occasionally there is sort of a stream of consciousness going on where a word in one phrase recalls something else, and then the next saying after that, or maybe the next group of sayings, will also have that particular word or idea contained in them. But there is no overall logical structure to this work, which again is a sign of its very early stage of formation in the development of Christianity. 
Jesus' sayings appear here as the utterances of a spiritual master. And there is an outer meaning and an inner meaning to every one of them. And finding the inner meaning is the point. These sayings are to be thought about, to be expanded upon, and finally to be applied, because they are meant to empower. And this also recalls Hindu teaching. In the Upanishads, we find the idea of shravana manana nitityasana, hearing the teaching, thinking about it in every possible way, questioning, 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 validating it, and then incorporating it into your life and being empowered by it. So the principle is the same. Now, these sayings have various different qualities to them. Uh, there are some sayings in the Gospel of Thomas that urge us not to conform to societal pressures, but to develop self-confidence, self-sufficiency, and self-awareness. Now, many of these sayings are like riddles, and the purpose of that is to cause us to think. If it doesn't make sense at first, give it some more thought. Look into it more deeply till you find the meaning. Some of them just seem to defy all logic, almost like Zen koans. And the purpose of this is to take us beyond our usual patterns of thought, to take us beyond the usual processes of the mind, and to open us up to new ways of knowing. And now what is exactly the point of all this? It's summed up beautifully by the Christian uh, New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan, who writes that the apocalypse-oriented Pauline theology, the one that preaches the end of the world, this looks ahead to a perfect ending. The wisdom-oriented Gospel of Thomas looks back to a perfect beginning, to one's original spiritual perfection, which is primordial and non-dual, and where the beginning and the end are one. Now, let's look at some of these sayings in the Gospel of Thomas. As I said, it opens with a one-sentence prologue, and here it is. These are the secret words that the living Yesu spoke and Didymus Judas Thomas wrote down. Yesu is the Coptic form of the name Jesus. The first question is, who is this Thomas who wrote this all down? There's been much debate about this, but scholars believe that it was definitely not the Apostle Thomas, the doubting Thomas of tradition, any more than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The authors remain unknown to this day, but these are names that were later applied. Now, probably the Thomas who wrote this gospel was an important apostle Thomas who lived in the city of Edessa, where the gospel of Thomas was written. And who was the living Jesus? One interpretation is that we're not speaking here of the resurrected Christ of Pauline Christianity, but rather of Jesus, the teacher of wisdom, who has discovered his own immortality and promises to guide those who hear his words. So that is the living Jesus, the enlightened sage who has discovered his own immortality. And what are the secret or hidden teachings? As Swami Prabhupada wrote in the Sermon on the Mount according to Vedanta, he wrote, Every illumined teacher has two sets of teachings, one to bring general benefit to the public, the other to reveal the inner spiritual truth to the intimate disciples in order to transform their consciousness. This is both a promise and a challenge. And Jesus himself makes this point in the Gospel of Mark. This is frequently quoted by biblical scholars. In the Gospel of Thomas, in saying 96, Jesus speaks of leaven hidden in dough. 
Leaven hidden in dough, that is the yeast, causes the dough to rise and to become the bread that nourishes and sustains life. The message that he is conveying with the symbolism is, look within and discover the potential already there within yourself. Expand and elevate your consciousness and nourish it with a new vision. So here's this simple loaf of bread that gives rise to this sublime teaching about finding the truth within yourself. In another saying, 109, he, Jesus uses a different metaphor, but with the same meaning. Here he speaks about treasure hidden in a field. And he says, when this treasure is dug up, it leads to wealth, power, and happiness. And here I have to think of the parable of Sri Ramakrishna about the woodcutter. The woodcutter would go every day into the edge of the forest and gather firewood to sell in the market. And he barely eked out a living. And as time went on, the wood became scarcer and scarcer. And on one particularly discouraging day in the forest, he met a holy man who told him to go deeper. And so the next day, the woodcutter went deeper into the forest and discovered a grove of sandalwood trees growing. And he brought some of the sandalwood back to the village, sold it in the market at a nice price, and was very comfortable. But a few days later, he remembered the holy man. And he said, he didn't tell me to stop. His advice was to move forward. And so the next day, the woodcutter went deeper into the forest, discovered a silver mine. Later on, he discovered a gold mine. And finally, at the very center of the forest, he discovered a mine filled with diamonds and other precious stones. And so that, again, is what Sri Ramakrishna is teaching us here, what Jesus taught us there, that this spiritual treasure of inestimable value is in your very heart, in the deepest part of your being. So go forward. Keep going deeper until you find it. Now, the other thing that Jesus said is that this enlightenment, this finding of the treasure, is not a matter of if, but of when. Because in the Gospel of Thomas, both in verses 6 and 108, Jesus said that what is hidden will be revealed. And why? Because in verse 5, he explains it. It's right in front of us already. We just don't see it. Now, Jesus has more to say about seeking. This is saying, too, from the Gospel of Thomas. Yesu said, He who seeks, let him not stop seeking until he finds. When he finds, he will be troubled. When he is troubled, he will be astonished, and he will become king over everything. So what does this mean? First of all, we go on the premise that this innate capacity to know God is latent in every one of us. This is a common theme in the Jewish wisdom tradition, of which uh, Jesus draws so heavily. And there, they teach that spiritual life unfolds through stages of discovery. So Jesus tells us to seek, to make an effort. Nothing's going to happen unless we make that effort. And then he says we will be troubled by what we find. I love this, because it's so paradoxical, and immediately it gets you to thinking. Why would we be troubled? It's because we're going to have our complacency overturned. Everything of our familiar conditioning and our comfortable assumptions about how things should be suddenly don't hold good anymore. And so here we are, our world is turned upside down. Yes, we feel troubled. But we're being awakened to spiritual knowledge. And we're beginning to see things in a new light. And when we see things in a new light, that is when we become astonished. 
We marvel at the new vision that opens up before us. Swami Prabhupada used to speak of that very, very often, about the vision opening up before you. And then Jesus says, when this happens, you will rule over all. This means you will have a different relationship with the world. You will no longer be reactive. You will no longer be torn this way and that by the happenings around you. Instead, you will have the serenity of self-control, and you will be freed from the passions that once had a hold over you. And so this is self-mastery. Self-mastery equals rule, and where there is rule, that implies there is a king. And where there is a king, there is a kingdom. The idea of kingdom is central to Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Thomas. The word kingdom occurs 22 times there in 18 different sayings. The first time is very early on in saying three. It actually consists of two sayings. I'll read the first part first, then we'll go on to the second. Saying three, Yesu said, If your leaders say to you, Behold, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is within you and outside of you. Now, what is this kingdom? It's not a kingdom in the sense of territory. It's not a kingdom in a geographical sense or a political sense. The origin of this term is found in one place. There's the phrase kingdom of God which does not occur in the Hebrew scriptures where you would expect it. It occurs only in one place in the Old Testament Apocrypha, in the wisdom of Solomon. And there, wisdom is spoken of as Sophia, or divine wisdom personified. And here's what Sophia, wisdom, says. Wisdom rescued from troubles those who served her. When a righteous man fled from his brother's wrath, she guided him on straight paths. She showed him the kingdom of God, and gave him knowledge of holy things. Kingdom of God, knowledge of holy things. So the Hebrew word for kingdom is malkut. And we find it frequently in the Jewish mystical teaching known as the Kabbalah. And there, malkut means divine immanence, the presence of God in and through the creation. That is the kingdom. Now, we'll contrast this briefly with the usual understanding in Pauline Christianity, where kingdom of God is a state of divine rule. And for most Christians throughout history, this kingdom has meant the coming apocalypse, the fiery end to the world as we know it. But there are two sayings in the Gospel of Thomas that emphatically refute this view. The rest of saying three. Jesus said, at the end of the first part of saying three, I'll repeat, Jesus said, the kingdom is within you and outside of you. So in other words, it's a state of awareness in which the divine presence is felt internally and perceived externally. The inner and the outer awareness of the divine presence, that is the kingdom. It is a matter of experience. The inner brings us peace and joy within our hearts, and the outer opens us up to the vibrant beauty throughout the creation. And together, we have inherent goodness of both human nature and the surrounding world, which create a sense of oneness, a unity in difference. We see the world in all its diversity, and yet we feel a oneness with it. And here I have to quote the issue of Anishad, verse 6. Yes to Savani Bhutani, 
Atmanyevanupasati, Sarvabhuteshu Chatmanam, Tatonavijagupsate. One who sees all beings in the self, and the self in all beings shrinks from nothing. Now, this last word of the, of the shloka, Vijagupsate, has a wide variety of meanings. But what it implies is that there is no disgust, no revulsion, no hatred, no fear. Now, how can that be? Well, how could you experience any of those things if you're experiencing the divine presence in and through all things? Now, the rest of the third saying is like this. Jesus says, When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will realize that you are children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you dwell in poverty, and you are that poverty. Now, this first part, the knowing and the known, what does that mean? Uh, we can look to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, this absolutely sublime passage that Paul wrote. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. So true knowing means no longer seeing through a glass darkly, no longer seeing through this veil of ignorance. It is knowing the self and the world in their true essence, not merely as they appear in the unenlightened state. We're seeing face to face. We're having direct experience of the divine. And then Jesus adds in the Gospel of Thomas that when you have this experience, you recognize yourselves as children of the living Father. In other words, divinity is our inherent nature. It's in our very DNA. Otherwise, if we fail to recognize this, we live in poverty. And that is the poverty of unknowing. It's very interesting that he contrasts and juxtaposes these words, kingdom and poverty. The kingdom is a state of spiritual fulfillment, of completeness, of autonomy. Poverty is the state of limitation imposed by the ignorance of the true self. So the kingdom equals self-knowledge, or atma-jnana in Sanskrit, and poverty equals ignorance, or ajnana in Sanskrit. Atma-jnana, ajnana, kingdom and poverty. Next we come to a teaching that was previously unknown before the Gospel of Thomas was discovered, saying 77, Yesu said, I am the light that is above everything. I am everything. From me everything has come forth, and to me everything aspires. Split open a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up a stone, and you will find me there. Now, here Jesus is speaking from the state of God consciousness. He proclaims his oneness with the light of consciousness, from which everything has come forth, in which everything exists, and to which everything returns. Now, it's strange that this saying has been troublesome to so many Christian commentators who dismiss it as pantheistic and unchristian. But if we compare it to the Gospel of John, we have Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And if we compare it to Paul's epistles, Paul writes of Jesus Christ through whom all things came to be. And he also characterizes Jesus as the source, guide, and goal of all that is. So there's not much difference. Now, the reference to stone and wood may be the problem here. And scholars think that this reference is a reply to the Jewish prophet, prophet Habakkuk, who had harangued that the presence of God was not to be found in any idol made of wood or stone, but only in the holy temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus 
It's going against that narrow sectarianism. He's telling us that the divine presence is everywhere. This is the vision that clearly belongs to the Jewish wisdom tradition, which personifies wisdom as God's own creative power reflected in the creation. So in this saying, saying 77, Jesus sees himself as united with divine consciousness. But then we have to ask, how did his disciples see him? He asks them in saying 13, and this saying takes the form of a dialogue. Jesus said to his disciples, compare me to someone and tell me whom I am like. Simon Peter said to him, you are like a righteous messenger. Matthew said to him, you are like a wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, teacher, my mouth is utterly unable to say whom you are like. Yesu said, I'm not your teacher, because you have drunk and become intoxicated from the bubbling spring that I have poured out. And he took him, Thomas, aside and spoke these three things to him. When Thomas came back to his companions, they asked him, what did Yesu say to you? Thomas said to them, if I tell you one of the sayings he spoke to me, you will pick up stones and cast them at me, and fire will come out from those stones and consume you. So, what's this all about? Peter's and Matthew's answers show a conventional understanding. Jesus is a messenger. He's a philosopher. They fail to see that he is an enlightened man of God. But Thomas's reply shows that he is ready to receive a greater spiritual truth. And so, because of that, his relationship with Jesus is about to change. Jesus says, I'm not your teacher. He's speaking to him not as a master, but as a friend with a secret to share. And now, just what was the secret? The Gospel of Thomas does not specify, but I think we can surmise that one of these three sayings was something like, you are that, tatuamasi in Sanskrit. Such a declaration of divinity in the Judeo-Christian circle would have been considered blasphemous. And the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. Now that much is clear. But then, if the disciples stone him, Jesus said, fire will come out from the rocks and consume them. It shows that this knowledge of the self is not for everyone. Everybody's not ready for it. And that those who hear the truth but fail to understand it, such as Simon, Peter, and Matthew, and then deny it, will find no comfort or joy in their conventional spirituality, because that lacks that penetrating vision into the heart of reality. So Jesus also addresses this matter of conventional piety, saying six. His disciples questioned him, saying, Do you want us to fast? How should we pray? Should we give alms? From what food should we abstain? Yesu said, Do not tell lies, and do not do what you abhor, for all things are revealed before heaven. There is nothing hidden that will not come forth and nothing covered that will remain unrevealed. So here, you first might think that he's sidestepping the question. It's, you know, his answer doesn't seem to match what they asked. But what he's saying is he's putting aside these outward observances, fasting, prayer, almsgiving, diet. For Jesus, an illumined soul, these have little importance anymore. Instead, he says, do not tell lies. In other words, truthfulness is indispensable. It is the indispensable principle of spiritual life. One of the Ten Commandments also says the same thing. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And in the Yoga Sutra Patanjali, where he outlines the eight steps of yoga, the first step, yama, 
consists of five spiritual principles. One of them is esteia, refraining from lying. In other words, being truthful. Then Jesus says, do not do what you abhor. And this is a variant of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And again, we look at the Yoga Sutra. One of these five other principles of yama is ahimsa. It is the first principle, the very first step of spiritual life. Do no harm to others in thought, word, or deed. So if we look at truthfulness and non-injury, the first of these, truthfulness, involves thought and speech. And then that thought and speech take form as action, and that is the ahimsa part of it. And our actions can be expressed either verbally or physically. So what we think and feel and say and do should add up to a complete integrity. It amounts to matching all of our actions to our deepest convictions. Now, there's a new twist also on fasting in saying 27. Jesus says, if you do not fast from the world, you will not find the kingdom. If you do not keep the Sabbath as Sabbath, you will not look upon the Father. To fast from the world means to cultivate dispassion. This is a very prominent principle in Hindu teaching, to be dispassionate, practice vairagya. And to keep the Sabbath as Sabbath means to rest from everyday concerns, to make time for contemplation of the holy. So without dispassion and mindfulness, we cannot expect much in the way of spiritual life. And another point of this keeping the Sabbath as Sabbath is this. Jesus internalizes the outward practices of Judaism, just as the ancient Indian sages internalized the Vedic rituals. And so the outward puja, the outwardly visible form of worship, becomes, in Hindu teaching, internalized and leads us all the way to the deepest truths of the Upanishads. Now this idea is again reinforced by Jesus in saying 89. Yesu said, Why do you wash the outside of the cup? Do you not understand that the one who made the inside is also the one who made the outside? So why are we so careful about maintaining outward observances while neglecting the inner purity of the mind and soul? Conventional religion does not lead to self-realization. Now the next thing is a parable. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Sri Ramakrishna like Jesus, used parables, simple imagery for abstract ideas, and told them in the forms of stories that gave practical advice. So here's an example from the teaching of Jesus of such an idea, a symbol that's used to convey a deeper message. Saying 45, Yesu said, Grapes are not harvested from thorns, nor are figs gathered from thistles, for they yield no fruit. A good man brings forth good from his storehouse, and a wicked man brings forth evil from the wickedness in his mind and says evil things. From the outflow of his mind, he brings forth evil. Does this sound a little like karma? The message is, as you do, so you become. And as you are, so you do. As you do, so you become. As you are, so you do. You're in this circle. So should we not act wisely? Yes, Jesus always tells us to act wisely. And sometimes, as he points out, acting wisely leads us to break with convention. I repeat here, Jesus colored outside the lines. 
saying 95. Jesus said, If you have money, do not lend it at interest. Rather, give it to someone from whom you will not get it back. Now, how's that for provocative? On the surface, this goes against common sense. And we can find at least two messages here, many more perhaps, but uh, two come to mind immediately. The first one is that this is a call to selfless action, not to act with your own interests in mind, but for the sake of others. And second, it's a call to give up expectations. We perform actions hoping for certain results, and when they fail to deliver, we feel disappointed, frustrated, angry. So we set ourselves up through our expectations, and then we react accordingly. Instead, Jesus shows us a path to freedom in the way we live our lives. It is we ourselves who create these bondages, and one of these is that bondage of expectation. So the way is simple, or at least it should be. And this is one of my favorite sayings in the entire gospel, because of its sutra-like character. Saying 42, Yesu said, Become passers-by. Two words, become passers-by. In other words, be unattached. In Hinduism, this teaching is a cornerstone of spiritual life. But how poetically and forcefully and memorably Jesus expresses it here. Become passers-by. He tells us to pass serenely through life, unensnared by anything we encounter along the way. And how can we do this? By keeping our mind on the goal, which he calls the kingdom. He's spoken of the kingdom before, but let's take a closer look at it now. There's a parable that was unknown outside of Thomas, and it created a great deal of excitement when it was discovered. Uh, many scholars regard it as an authentic and important teaching of Jesus. It's as if we're hearing a parable of Jesus for the first time without any later editing or interpretation or familiarity or anything else to color it. It's meant to puzzle. It's meant to make hearers think for themselves. And so modern scholars tend to refrain from interpretation. I'll read the parable, and then I'm going to break with modern scholars and give you a possible interpretation. Saying 97, Yesu said, The Father's kingdom is like a woman carrying a jar full of meal. While she was walking along a road far from home, the handle of the jar broke, and the meal poured out behind her on the road. She did not know it. She was unaware of her loss. When she reached her house, she put the jar down and found it was empty. Now, with this parable, Jesus wanted to provoke his disciples to discover the great spiritual truths for themselves. And so here's how I interpret it. You may have an entirely different uh, interpretation, and that's fine. All of these sayings are meant to speak to different people in different ways. But I like to think of the woman as the embodied soul, traveling along the road of life, far from home, far from her true being. The human condition is far from our true being. We are burdened with a jar full of meal, the mind and its contents. The handle of the jar is attachment, that sense of holding on. And when it breaks off, it leaves a hole through which the flower gradually spills out of the jar. Through non-attachment, the mind is gradually emptied of the contents that bind us, and the transformation of character takes place so slowly that we might not be aware of it. 
When we reach our house and discover that the jar is empty, we are relieved of all that burden of mind, ego, and intellect that we've been carrying along. We are at home in our true being, which Jesus calls the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is prevalent throughout Jesus' teachings, both in the idea that it is within you and it is outside of you. So when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is within us, he is referring to that inexpressible state of awareness that lies beyond the senses, even beyond thought itself. It is our own divinity, and this awareness transforms our outward vision. We begin to see divinity or God everywhere. And in this regard, Jesus has more to reveal. In saying 113, he says, His disciples said to him, On what day will the kingdom come? And Jesus answers, It will not come by looking outwardly for it, not by saying, look over here or look over there. Rather, the Father's kingdom is spread out upon the earth and people see it not. Now, we have to place this metaphor in this cultural context. In the ancient Middle East, a kingdom would have been a place of security, justice, and peace for subjects of the king who inspired reverence and awe. Jesus spiritualizes that idea by telling us that the kingdom is not a place, but a state of being. The self-luminous stillness of pure, transcendental oneness. The kingdom is the supreme non-duality. So in regard to this teaching of non-duality, in conclusion, we'll let Jesus have the last say. Two sayings, in fact. Saying 17, Yesu said, I shall give you what no eye has seen, and what no ear has heard, and what no hand has touched, and what has not occurred to the human mind. Saying 22, When you make the two into one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, and when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male will not be male, and the female will not be female, then you will enter the kingdom. I'll close with a chant. Om Ardhwam Jwalati Jyotirahamasmi Jyotir Jwalati Brahmahamasmi Yahamasmi Brahmahamasmi Ahamasmi Brahmahamasmi Ahamevahamam Juhomi Swaha The light within me shines. I am the light. The light that shines brightly, I am that Brahman. That which I am is nothing but Brahman. I am and I am Brahman. I myself offer myself into the infinite light, which is myself. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.